according to St. Mark. Glory to you, O Lord. King Herod heard of Jesus and his disciples, for Jesus' name had become known. Some were saying, John the baptizer has been raised from the dead, and for this reason these powers are at work in him. But others said, It is Elijah. And others said, It is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard it, he said, John, whom I have beheaded, has been raised. For Herod himself had sent men who arrested John, bound him, and put him in prison on account of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because Herod had married her. For John had been telling Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to kill him. But she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he protected him. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he liked to listen to him. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his courtiers and officers and for the leaders of Galilee. When his daughter Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it. And he solemnly swore to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you, even half of my kingdom. She went out and said to her mother, What should I ask for? Her mother replied, The head of John the baptizer. Immediately she rushed back to the king and requested, I want you to give me at once the head of John the baptizer on a platter. The king was deeply grieved, yet out of regard for his oaths and for the guests, he did not want to refuse her. Immediately the king had sent a soldier of the guard with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison, brought him his head on a platter, and gave it to the girl. Then the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard about it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Grace to you and peace from God, our Heavenly Father, and Christ Jesus, our Lord, who claims those whom the world has rejected. Amen. A mediocre TV show or movie might be worth watching once. And we all know what a beach read is. It's a popular book that you take with you on vacation. It might be worth reading one time while listening to the waves and trying to keep an eye on the dog or the kids. But nobody is going to praise it for the beauty of its prose. It is a good way to pass the time. A really good movie or book, though, is worth revisiting. And a great work, subjective though that title might be, is worth returning to time and time again. And every time you watch it or listen to it or read it, some new detail emerges. A new theme reaches out and grabs you by the collar and says, pay attention to this. The second, the third, the tenth time through, 
you're still catching subtle foreshadowing, shades of irony, jokes that are set up three episodes before the punchline pays off, plots that are discreetly seeded in the first pages and culminate in the final chapters, notes of the symphony that start subtly but soon dominate the score, meaningful echoes that play out on different levels. For instance, I spent this past week rereading a book by Michael Chabon, one of my favorite yeah. authors. And I've read it, I don't know how many times, probably about five, there was a period where I would alternate between this book and one of his other works every year. And with each new revisit, new details stick out to me. Ways that he sets up themes in the first pages that dominate the rest of the novel. The way he plays around with genre. The minor turns of phrase in this work that, with a wink and a nod, pop up in what he called his fictional autobiography a decade later. Works of art like this are meant to be revisited. They're, taken, they're meant to be taken in as a whole, as though saying, read this from the beginning with the end already in mind. Now, this is not a groundbreaking theological claim. Nobody's going to give me a doctorate for saying this. But scripture is written with this same type of foreshadowing, with these sort of thematic echoes. One of my favorite professors used to encourage us to read scripture this way, to read the text at hand. And before we decided what it meant, to go back and reread the entire book, as if to say, how does this one scene shape the larger story that Mark is telling? And on term papers, for us to read not just the entire book, but to go back and reread the entire New Testament or the entire Bible, as if to say, what is Mark saying that is changing the entire trajectory of Scripture? And so even biblical scholars and pastors and people who have been faithfully in the pews for decades will stumble across new connections that they, have missed, they may have missed, reading through the text hundreds or thousands of times before. To be sure, it is very easy to miss these connections in the Gospel according to St. Mark because his is the bare-bones, fast-paced gospel. If Mark had a catchphrase, it would be immediately. It's his way of pushing the narrative along. An event unfolds, and immediately the story is moving on. Jesus enters a town, and immediately a person comes to him. Christ works a wondrous miracle, and immediately the story is moving up and on to the next big thing. Today's gospel reading could be acted out in less than five minutes, but Mark manages to sneak in two immediately's in just 15 verses. I dare say his writing teacher may have called him repetitive, 
And Mark doesn't give us much time to dwell on the subtle details. But despite this fast-paced immediacy, St. Mark is constantly weaving his stories together, setting up those plot lines that pay off chapters later. Once again, the lectionary is sort of shortchanging us by omitting something, because Mark follows up today's story with the feeding of the multitude. And next week, we'll read the text immediately surrounding that miracle before and after, but we won't read the miracle itself. It's a pity, too, because Mark has this nice thematic foreshadowing. Today, Herod holds a meal for the powerful. He invites all of his friends, his officers, those who form his court, leaders in Galilee that he wants to curry favor with, and it ends in a gruesome death. Immediately after that, Jesus holds a meal for the lowly, for those who no one else wants to curry favor with. And it ends not in a display of death, but a display of God's life-sustaining mercy. To be sure, in fairness to the lectionary, we will soon pick this theme up again, not next week, but the week after, because then we start reading a lengthy section from St. John's Gospel as Jesus feeds the multitude and then offers a long discourse on his identity as the bread of heaven. And so while Mark moves us right along, John is going to give us over a month to ponder this profound and divine mystery. John, unlike Mark, provides perhaps overly ample space to dwell on the details. And so I encourage you to keep today's reading in mind when we come back to it. Instead, though, instead of looking forward, let's look back. Do you remember where we left off last week? Jesus had gone to his hometown and immediately sent out the twelve to proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins. And the weird thing is, he did this after his family members, those he grew up with, rejected him. Having not been able to perform a miracle in his hometown, Jesus sent his disciples out to perform some of the same work that John the Baptist has been doing since chapter 1. Now, imagine if, immediately after reading the gospel, an old-timey TV announcer had said, next time on the gospel according to St. Mark, a beloved character meets a gruesome end, and there's kind of an organ cue. Tune in next Sunday, same Jesus time, same Jesus channel. So suddenly, we know what's going to happen. We know that someone is going to die. The stakes are super high, right? And the lectionary kind of assumes that at least the preacher, if not the entire congregation, has been through this cycle before, that we're a little bit familiar with Mark. And so when Jesus sends the disciples out, we're supposed to know that something bad is going to happen. Mark wants us to know that the stakes are super high. He wants us to know that the peril is so immediate. He wants us to know that death has come near. He wants us to grasp the rejection that comes and the high cost it bears. He wants us to know that the disciples have just been sent out into a dangerous world. 
In chapter 1, John comes proclaiming repentance. He baptizes Jesus, and then he is arrested. Immediately after his arrest, Jesus comes preaching repentance. And then the Baptist is removed from the narrative for several chapters. He just sort of disappears for a while. And we don't hear about him again until today. And I suggest that Mark is using John the Baptist as sort of an exclamation point, saying, pay attention to this. When people go out proclaiming repentance and forgiveness, pay attention. Hold on. When people go out, they face danger. Pay attention. Are you paying attention? Good. You're going to face arrest. Pay attention because you're going to face death. It's kind of a worrying use of an exclamation point, I've got to be honest. So last week, we saw Christ's own family reject him and try to restrain him. We've seen his entire hometown reject him. And now things are beginning to pick up. The stakes are rising. Jesus warned the disciples that there are people who will reject this message. And now we see more fully the cost of that rejection. We see that it is death, and not a good death if there is such a thing. Death by beheading, in a time where you had to pay the swordsmen to make sure that they did the job quickly and with a sharpened instrument. More than emphasizing past events, though, today's gospel points us forward. It is a foreshadowing of things to come. Because in just two chapters, Jesus will tell his disciples that he must be rejected and crucified. His preaching takes a deathly turn. The closer he draws to Jerusalem, the more Jesus talks about his own imminent death. And we, of course, know what happens when he finally arrives in Jerusalem. We know about the sham trial, the torture, the cross, the tomb. And reading today, we are left with the distinct impression that Mark is trying to underline how much the Baptist and Christ have in common. How alike their deaths are. Herod and Pilate, those stooges of the Roman Empire, both have a sort of bizarre fascination with their victims. Consider what St. Mark writes. When he heard John preach, Herod was greatly perplexed. And yet he liked to listen to him. Later, Pilate will question Jesus, and he will be amazed. These men are both ruthless and bloodthirsty tyrants. They commit murder without a second thought. And yet, Mark tells us, they both shed blood on behalf of others. Both John the Baptist and Jesus the Christ confront the powers and principalities of this world by proclaiming repentance, forgiveness of sins, and the coming kingdom of God. And both John and Jesus are rejected by this world and put to death by those same powers. And so far, this might just be a noteworthy bit of literary analysis, an interesting point for academic discussion. But what is St. Mark trying to tell the church? 
simply that John and Jesus are similar? That Mark, though concise, is a good writer, he's just sort of showing off? No, the meaning of this is only evident if we read from the beginning with the end in mind. It's not just that John and Jesus have similar lives. It's not just that they're parallel figures, but rather that John prefigures Christ. Because John's preaching points ever toward Christ and the coming kingdom. John's very ministry hints at something more, at something bigger than him, something greater than. And what is it? What is this end that we are bringing back to the story with us? Why is it that we read this text after Holy Week and Easter? Because we bring to it the passion of our Lord and his glorious resurrection. Because like John, Jesus is put to death, and upon hearing of Christ, Herod even fears that John has been raised. But we know better than Herod. We know that Jesus is the one who will rise victorious, shattering the bonds of death. We know what Herod does not, that the Herods and Pilots of this world don't have the final say. The demons and the devil don't have the final say. Sin, death, and the grave don't have the final say. The world may reject us, but God claims us. The powers of this world may bind us, but Christ sets us free. The world may even kill us, but Christ gives us life everlasting. Jesus has conquered this grave-filled world and shattered the bonds of death. And like those twelve ragtag disciples last week, he's sending us out to proclaim his eternal victory. Christ is sending us out in the middle of chaos, poverty, and violence, into the midst of graves, but sending us out in the confidence that this story ends in new and everlasting life. So, dear ones, come to the feast, not to the deathly feast of Herod, but the life-giving feast of Christ. Draw near to the Lord of life. Come, experience the immediacy of God's grace. Come find all that you need for the mission on which we are sent. Come find life. Come, receive our Lord. Come, be received by our Lord. Come be all that Christ made you to be. Come to become the life-giving body of Christ for the world. Amen.